Australia launches into space. And importantly, the first commercial launch ever undertaken by NASA outside of the USA. Australian public opinion. You know, the majority of Australians see Russia's foreign policy as a threat to Australia's interests, and that has moved up the top of the list in 2022. Policing in the Pacific. But in mainland China, you can see the difference in policing compared to what you and I are used to, John, in our respective countries. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Recently, we saw the third and final launch of a NASA rocket from Australia's Arnhem Space Centre. The first successful suborbital rocket launch from an Australian commercial centre and the first commercial launch ever by NASA outside of the United States. ASPE's resident space wonks, Beck Shrimpton and Dr. Malcolm Davis, discuss the significance of these launches, what it means for the Australian space industry, and how the Australian government can support this industry. I am here today with fellow self-confessed and proud space nerd, Malcolm Davis. And Malcolm, it's a hugely exciting time to be a space nerd in Australia. We've seen this week the third and final successful commercial launch of a scientific payload by NASA from Equatorial Launch Australia's Arnhem Space Centre in the Northern Territory. I don't think it's possible to overplay the importance of this successful launch campaign by NASA. A couple of firsts have been achieved here. The first successful launch of a suborbital rocket from an Australian commercial spaceport. And importantly, the first commercial launch ever undertaken by NASA outside of the USA. So launch is literally taking off in this country, Malcolm, again, because of course we were active in this area in the 50s and 60s. But Malcolm, I want to ask you about the importance of access to space or space launch. Why is launch such an important capability and and where does it fit in defence and national security strategy and planning? Well, thanks, Rebecca. Look, I think it is hugely important. For starters, when you look back at where we've come from in essentially the last six years even, we've gone from a posture of essentially dismissing sovereign launch capability as, as not required to having our own emerging launch capabilities at the Arnhem Space Centre, as well as at Southern Launch's Whalers Way launch site, potentially even a third launch site at Bowen in Queensland. We've got companies like Gilmore Space Technology that are developing launch vehicles. We've got companies that are developing payloads, including satellites. All of this has happened very quickly. And I think it represents a fundamental turnaround in how we as Australians think about accessing space. And I think it's important because it really marks a point of maturity in our thinking about space. We're no longer content just to be essentially a consumer of space capabilities and to be passively dependent on others to provide space capabilities for us. We want to provide space capabilities for ourselves and also for our partners across the Indo-Pacific region and beyond. And so that means we're developing sovereign capabilities in space systems, in architecture, in launch capabilities, and in launch sites. And I think, as I said, that's a point of maturity that is really important as this nation develops space capabilities. Absolutely agree with you. And and for Australia's commercial space industry, Malcolm, I mean, so many other parts of the space value chain rely on things actually getting up into space. So, um, you know, it's it's a really critical link in that chain. And as you said, I, I note that um, Commander Space Command 
Air Vice Marshal Roberts has publicly stated several times her intent to move the ADF from being a consumer of space services to being a serious contributor. So very, very important developments. Let's take a look now, though, at the three successful NASA launches from the Northern Territory and from the Arnhem Space Centre. Malcolm, most immediately, what do you think this means for, for Equatorial Launch Australia, for the Arnhem Space Centre itself, as well as for the Northern Territory? Look, I think for the Arnhem Space Centre and for Equatorial Launch Australia, it's an important step. It's a proof of concept that they can establish a launch site at Nullumboy and launch rockets from there. Yes, these three launches were sounding rockets. They weren't orbital launches, but those orbital launches will come in time. And the location of, of Arnhem is so vital in terms of taking advantage of Earth's rotation. Because it's closer to the equator than any other launch site in Australia, it gains that advantage in terms of picking up energy from the Earth's rotation. And that, that translates into lower cost per kilogram of payload into orbit as compared to other launch sites. Now, Whaler's Way in the south is vital for different types of orbits, for polar orbits and sun-synchronous orbits. But for Nullumboy and the Arnhem Space Centre, it's really well set up for equatorial low-Earth orbit missions. And so having these three launches demonstrates as a proof of concept that a launch site can be set up and operate in the north, and then that builds into orbital launches down the track. And I think that's where the next step is. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's terrific and, and really important to understand the, you know, the differences that different geographic positions offer in terms of launch. Now, you mentioned it, Malcolm, but um, Australia has one other operational commercial spaceport, Southern Launch down in South Australia, and we have ambitious space launch companies. Um, Southern did a launch attempt not too long ago with AT Space, and while that experienced some technical issues and it didn't quite achieve launch, the key thing was that very important and useful data was collected and analysed from that attempt. We know they'll try again and they'll apply the lessons that they learnt from that, and launch is like this. It requires a robust appetite for risk, and what we've seen certainly from more recent examples in the US and with international newer rocket companies what really matters is that ability to learn, adapt and get back onto the pad and succeed. The other player that, that you mentioned, Malcolm, and I think is important in our sovereign space context is Gilmore, headed up by the, the very energetic, ambitious and highly motivated Adam Gilmore. Now, they're going after what we could describe as a truly end-to-end -end sovereign space launch capability, which would include Australian payloads on Australian rockets launching from Australian soil. This would be an absolutely extraordinary achievement. So, Malcolm, my question for you now is how important is it that we continue to invest in and develop Australian spaceports as a genuine national asset and for our government to support these Australian sovereign actors in a deliberate and well-thought-out way? Look, I, I think it is vital because if we don't have sovereign launch capability, which includes a sovereign launch site and also the launch vehicles, which Gilmore are developing, then we are dependent on others. And so our satellites go into the queue and wait for months, if not longer, to be launched into space. And in a crisis, that could mean that we simply don't get the space capability that we need when we need it. So having that sovereign capability for space launch in that end-to-end -end process that you're talking about in relation to what Gilmore are doing, I think is really important. As I said, it marks that, that step of maturity 
to the next level. And from there, we can expand that and start thinking about larger rockets that can lift more payload into orbit. And well down the track, you know, maybe by the end of this decade, we can even think about human spaceflight out of Australian launch sites. And it also, it's not just about Australia, it's also about what we can offer to our partners in the region. So can we launch payloads for the US or for Japan or Indonesia or India? These are all possibilities that I think are opened up when we actually do provide that capability. Yeah, absolutely. And I think an important point you made earlier about the different advantages of the different geography that Australia offers. I mean, we can we can really do any kind of launch, can't we, of small, of lighter, medium, heavy kind of payloads. We can do them to almost any orbit and any inclination. Is that right? That's correct. And we can look beyond the near-Earth region as part of the Australian Space Agency's Moon to Mars program, where we can start thinking about how we support um, lunar logistics in support of crewed missions to the moon. So, you know, that's an important step. We're becoming a major space actor in the Indo-Pacific region. And as I said, go back 10 years and we were doing nothing. We were essentially a passive consumer of space. So we've made huge progress over the last decade. I'd like to just touch briefly on this developing important nexus between commercial and military space. And I'd like to to get your thoughts on the importance of the commercial space sector to defence in Australia. You've spoken about our decades-long hiatus from a really serious commitment to developing sovereign space capabilities. And so our, our recent government commitments are relatively new and they're relatively humble, if you like, but can you offer just some thoughts now on on just how commercial space can contribute to defence-specific objectives and missions? Yeah, look, I think that in addition to the launch side of things, you are seeing a lot of companies here in Australia developing satellites for space-based space surveillance. You're seeing companies developing satellites for what could be useful for surveillance of targets on Earth, either through electro-optical or through electromagnetic, in other words, electronic warfare, ELINT and SIGINT, companies that are developing a range of capabilities that might be best termed the sort of Project Starshot type small satellites that can complement larger capabilities. So, for example, one of the key projects that's going forward now is JP9102, which is the next generation satellite communications for the ADF. That's initially going to be based on four to five large satellites in GEO that will be acquired through a major overseas prime. But we could complement those four to five satellites with a constellation of small satellites in LEO and MEO that could be developed locally by Australian companies. And there you have a much more survivable and resilient satellite communication system than what we would get through simply acquiring four to five large satellites in GEO. So there's potential opportunities by bringing together the small satellite technologies and sovereign launch that all can be done from Australia, essentially, rather than relying purely on overseas primes. And I think that's where Australia's commercial space sector really comes into it. Yeah, that's great. I agree with you, Malcolm. And and I think what something like the recent campaign does by so visibly demonstrating capability from this country is it helps us put that kind of capability in the broader context of what space delivers to all of us every day, from its its potential to contribute to disaster management and bushfire monitoring, to looking at ocean health, 
monitoring climate and, and mapping methane emissions. I mean, its role in, in precision navigation and timing on weather. Even for our for our farmers, Australia is a is a land of, of enormous stations that that require monitoring that is very very difficult to do without space capabilities frankly so um what a what a great time and what a great window i guess to look through to explore space more broadly i think that's probably all we have time for today malcolm but we're going to return to this topic and continue the conversation in future podcasts thanks so much for your time today malcolm thank you and i would agree with you that it's never been a better time to be a space policy analyst in australia <laughs> excellent thank you recently the Lowy Institute released its annual poll, which captures Australian views of the world and current global issues. Fergus Ryan speaks to the author of the 2022 poll, Natasha Kassam, about the notable shifts in this year's poll and what surprised her in the polling results. Tash, welcome to the podcast um, and congratulations on another successful poll. Um, I wanted to start off uh, by asking you was there anything that surprised you about this year's poll results? Thanks so much for having me, Fergus. The biggest surprise to me, and maybe others wouldn't be so surprised by it, but the extent to which Australians have been clearly affected by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and have really started to see that as a very significant concern, but also as a significant threat to Australia's interests. I think I assumed as much as everybody rightly was shocked by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that conflict happening so far from Australia would make it more of a remote threat for Australians, but that's not the case. You know, the majority of Australians see Russia's foreign policy as a threat to Australia's interests, and that has moved up the top of the list in 2022. Interesting. And has that change in perspective around Russia also affected how Australians feel about any any other issues? Has it, for example, um, affected how Australians feel about the potential for Taiwan to be a flaring up point? Yeah, I think you've nailed exactly the reason Australians are feeling so anxious. So it's clearly had an effect on threat perceptions around China and around the potential for conflict over Taiwan. So we've gone from the top of the list of threats for Australians being the pandemic and climate change and cyber attacks to now seeing Russia's foreign policy, China's foreign policy and a conflict in the Taiwan Strait as the top of the threat perception. I think that what has happened is that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has made Australians realise that peace and security in our region can't be taken for granted. And so while concern about military conflict between the United States and China over Taiwan has been on an upwards trajectory for the last couple of the years, it's now very much majority concern. You know, 64% of Australians say that such a conflict poses a critical threat to our interests. It's up 12 points in only one year. And it also, I think, has had a significant impact on how safe Australians are feeling, with only half the country reporting in 2022 that they feel safe. It's a 17-point drop from last year, but it's also 40 points below what it was 10 years ago. So Australians are feeling pretty anxious. Part of that is about Russia, but I think a big part of that is about China as well. And in 2022, for the first time, a majority of Australians 
would favor using the Australian military if China invaded Taiwan and the United States decided to intervene. Um, it's a very slim majority that you note, it's just 51%. Is it, is it your sense that there's likely to be volatility around this question in the future? And has it changed much over time? Was that a particularly surprising finding for you? I would say that I was to some extent expecting that number to tick upwards to a majority. I think I actually predicted it at some point at the end of last year. The reason for that is not very complicated, but in the United States, the Chicago Council has been asking the same question about of Americans for a couple of decades now, and it tipped over to 51% in 2021 for Americans with the majority saying that they should go to Taiwan's defense if it was invaded by China. I think when it comes to Australians, there's a couple of things going on. One is that increasing anxiety about China as a military threat. And so in 2022, 75% of Australians say that China may become a military threat to Australia in the next two decades. That's a huge shift over the last four years. And I think goes to show that not only do Australians see China as a security threat in the region as having concerns around China's human rights record and of course being worried by China's economic coercion of Australia, but they now worry about China becoming an actual military threat. But the other reason I think is growing awareness and understanding of Taiwan in the region. So in 2022, um, the majority of Australians recognise Taiwan as a democracy. Uh, that's a big jump in just the past year. And as you say, 51% would favour using the Australian military in the case of a conflict. I think that the other thing to point out there is when Australians are asked about a hypothetical military conflict between China and the United States, the majority actually say we should remain neutral. So it's interesting that when you bring in an actual real place that might be invaded, then that shifts Australians' perceptions of what we should be doing in that case. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I remember reading somewhere about the Lowy feelings thermometer, saying that Australians feel quite warmly towards Taiwan. Is that right? That's correct. And what's really interesting about that is that as recently as four years ago, in 2018, if you looked at our feelings thermometer, which asks Australians how warmly or coolly they feel towards countries and territories and institutions, so zero is the coldest, 100 is the warmest, China and Taiwan were inseparable in 2018. They were both at around the 60 degree mark. So you might describe that as lukewarm or, you know, maybe a little warmer than that. What's happened in the intervening years is that Taiwan has moved up the thermometer. Australians are feeling more warmly towards Taiwan, and that's now sitting at 64 degrees and China has dropped dramatically and is now sitting at 33 degrees. So four years ago, our feelings towards China and Taiwan were the same. Now there's 30 degrees between them. Tasha, I asked you at the top what surprised you the most, but what, what was the least surprising thing? What was the thing that you, you thought was definitely going to be on the cards? Oh, that's a great question. I think the least surprising result would have to be the way Australians are feeling about Vladimir Putin and Russia. Now, I mentioned already that Russia's foreign policy posing a threat to Australian interests, that surprised me. But the flip side of that, that Australians generally do not trust Russia and do not have confidence in Putin, 
that is less surprising. And what we see is that President Putin is now at the bottom of the list of leaders for Australians. You know, he's sitting below Xi Jinping, which in recent years has been the leader that Australians have the least confidence in. And similarly, China has been the country that Australians have the least level of trust in, but that's now been uh, surpassed or usurped, shall we say, by Russia. And I mean, that's quite a feat for Putin to go lower than Xi Jinping, because it's my understanding that Xi Jinping's ranking went to a record low this year in 2022 of 11%. Is that right? Right. So only 11% of Australians say they have confidence in Xi Jinping, but it's half that when it comes to President Putin. It's only 5% for President Putin. So that it is quite a feat, as you say. I think it's important to point out that every year the Lowy Institute poll goes into the field in March, and that was no different this year, but that does mean that the invasion happened just a week before. So it was sitting at the front of Australians' minds as they were being asked these questions. But still, given the way public opinion towards China has declined in the past four years and just how negative that sentiment it is, it is, I think, remarkable that Russia has managed to kind of take those places. Also at the bottom of the feelings thermometer, which we just spoke about. Tash, one of the the really interesting things that's stuck out to me is the generational divide in Australia on a lot of these issues. I think particularly because around about the same time we we got the census results and it showed that millennials are overtaking boomers. Can you tell us a bit about that, the generational divide on some of these issues? This is really fascinating to me because if you look, for example, in the United States, public opinion on foreign policy there is divided by red and blue, right? It's if you're left or right, and that's the way in which a lot of these issues cut. That's generally not the case in Australia, although there are some exceptions where foreign policy is more bipartisan and Australian voters are not necessarily divided in their views on foreign policy by their political attitudes. Where there is a dramatic divide in Australia is by age. On some issues, that's not that surprising. You know, I don't think that many Australians would be surprised to hear that younger Australians are far more concerned by climate change than older generations of Australians. Similarly, I don't think anybody would be surprised to know that younger Australians are more supportive of immigration, open to refugees, and they see Australia's openness as being essential to Australian identity. And all of that is much more likely than their older counterparts. Where I find some surprising numbers, it is when it comes to our attitudes to the United States, for example. You know, younger Australians are more likely to say that Australia should be more neutral when it comes to our relationship with the United States. They're not as likely to see the alliance as important to Australia, and they're more concerned by entrapment by the alliance. So by that I mean young Australians are more likely to see that Australia's alliance with the United States will take us to a war in Asia that would not be in our interests. Now, that's a view that the majority of Australians worry about, but it is held more closely by young Australians. And I think there's also something worth pointing out when we look at China, which is that young Australians are also quite concerned by China. I'm not suggesting that's not the case, but they are less likely to favour 
military conflict and perhaps even increasing our defence expenditure and leaning into some of the policies that have been announced in the last few years in response to China's behaviour. Older Australians, I think particularly those that remember the Cold War, remember those relationships with the United States and really worry about the threat that China poses, they're much more likely to adopt a kind of stronger approach on defence, on military, on submarines than younger Australians are. And finally, Tash, I'd, I'd love to get your view on to what extent you think Australia is or isn't an outlier on on these sorts of questions. Are, are we seeing similar attitudes towards Russia, towards China around the world? I think up until 2018, Australia was very much an outlier when you look at countries we might consider to be like-minded. So the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, these countries have all had souring public opinion towards China since around 2008. That's not the case in Australia. In Australia, up until 2019, the majority of Australians trusted China. They had confidence in China's leadership. They felt relatively warmly towards China. And of course, a lot of this comes from the fact that in 2008, China became Australia's largest trading partner. And for many Australians, our economic prosperity and survival through the global financial crisis was seen as a result of that close relationship with China. Now, everything changed in 2019 and Australia not only caught up to those like-minded countries in terms of public opinion towards China, but in many cases has overtaken them. But of course, the world is bigger than just those few countries, and it really depends where you ask. Japan and South Korea, they feel more negatively towards China than Australians do. If you look at Pew polling that's been done in Malaysia and Singapore, they still have, I think, more favorability towards China than Australians and some of the other countries I've mentioned. And then there's many more mixed views in our region. You know, we recently conducted a poll of Indonesian attitudes to the world, and we found quite negative views towards China, but similar negativity towards the United States. So it's clear that in different countries, they're suddenly perceiving this moment of great power competition in different ways. Fascinating. Tash, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Fergus. China's recent security agreement with Solomon Islands gives Beijing the ability to send police and military forces to the Pacific nation. Dr John Coyne speaks to Senator Vern White about some of the risks associated with China playing a bigger role in the region's policing and the important role that Australia and its partners play in policing in the Pacific. Hi everyone, it's John Coyne. Today I'm joined on Policy, Guns and Money by Senator Vernon White. How are you going, Vern? Good, John. How are you? Good to see you always. Good, mate. Good. Look, over the last several weeks, Australians and no doubt some Canadians have been sitting back watching the Chinese Communist Party talking about setting up bilateral relations in the Pacific, most notably with the Solomon Islands. And you know, in amongst all of those details, there's discussions around policing, and I don't think a lot of I don't think a lot of the mainstream media have picked up on these discussions in terms of what's on offer. And secondly, I don't think for the average sort of even national security policy person who's not in law enforcement itself, whether they understand you know the fundamental differences between you know our community type policing approach or democratic policing versus this sort of more national security or securitized policing offering 
that China might have. So I thought, what better way to start this day than speaking to someone who served in the Canadian, Royal Canadian Mounted Police for a number of decades, finished off as the, the chief at Ottawa, now sitting senator, for some sort of commentary in regards to, and I know also you spent some time in China with the Chinese police, so in training institutes. I mean, I guess my first question for you is, is whether or not you could elaborate for those non-policy people out there, what is this democratic policing model that we have, separate from all the hyper hoopla? Well, look, the reality in Australia, Canada, and, and to be fair, the vast majority of the Commonwealth, and that includes a number of the islands in and around uh, Australia, in particular those islands that have been influenced by Australian policing, which with Solomon Islands as an example has been, the reality is that the police actually represent the law and justice. They don't represent the government, although they're funded by the government. So they actually, in essence, work for the people because those laws have been brought forward by people who are, are voted in by the general public. Now, saying that, there's always the challenge. And look, we saw it during COVID when some laws were put in place in a number of different states in, in Australia and a number of places in Canada where the public said, I'm not sure that you're representing my needs anymore. But the reality is, though, that even if we agreed or disagreed, they still were representing the needs of the population, kind of like, you know, vaccines, mandates, all of those things were meant to keep us all safe and alive. I can tell you, though, the model that's used in, in, in China, and I've, I've taught at the Chinese People's Public Security University, represents the government of China. It does not represent the people. And you can go back and look, whether it's in Hong Kong, some of the activities over the last five years in particular, but in mainland China, you can see the difference in policing compared to what you and I are used to, John, in our respective countries. And certainly having visited a number of those countries around Australia, they feel the same way. I don't think the public will accept or respect a model of policing that doesn't represent what they believe is a representative model. You know, as, as Peel's principles say, you know, the people are the police and the police are the people. That's what we've come to expect. And and discussions around, and I, I understand China, they, you know, they've They've had a pathway now for probably 15 years, aggressive pathway, pathway about developing um, bilateral, uh, bilaterally with these countries, whether that's constructing, you know, parliament in Samoa or a new airport in Samoa and, and a number of other things in other countries. But if they're going to start talking about developing policing, it must stop at bricks and mortar. It cannot stop at the, the molding of the hearts and minds, as I see, of a police officer, or, or I can tell you they'll have real challenges in those countries. And look, Vern, let's be quite frank here. In the past, Western countries, you know, in the era of colonialism, Western countries set up police forces in those regions, so in the Pacific and the Pacific nations, to protect the government and to police the community. And that was overwhelmingly rejected in terms of communities. We saw that rejected, not just because of the end of colonialism and independence in those countries, but communities just didn't trust police. There's been a really long, significant effort across the region to really evolve policing, both in terms of professionalism, as well as in way it engages with the community. And certainly, you know, the police that you see today operating in the Solomon Islands are very different than the police that were operating there 25 years ago. And the community level of respect and trust has fundamentally increased. Now, militarising or going backwards and securitizing the police in terms of protecting government, I don't think will do anything positive in terms of, of creating trust. It won't do anything positive, certainly in terms of police KPIs, for want of a better term, but 
But even separately from that, the social fabric of those communities would deeply be affected should there be a more, I guess, securitized approach. Well, if we look at the last 10 years, you know, uh, we actually have seen countries moving towards a more open, engaged police service with the community, not a less engaged. I can tell you the expectation, if anybody has an expectation that anything that's developed by China when it comes to law enforcement will be more open and engaging, they will soon find themselves on the wrong side of this. Because the reality for those countries is that they want to, you know, they want representativeness, first of all, they want engagement, secondly, they want community policing, that means policing with the community, providing a service to that community and developing solutions for community problems. They will not see any of those things with a Chinese model of developing a police service and whether that's even low-level training or even some of the advanced training. And having been at the Australian Institute of Police Management with some executive from Hong Kong, even over, over the 10 years that I was engaged in some of those meetings and some training with Hong Kong senior executives, we saw a shift in the way they think about policing as well. And Hong Kong, of all of China, will be certainly further down the pathway to a democratized police service compared to mainland China. So I can tell you they'll be sadly mistaken. And I'm often felt that countries find themselves financially needing the support of China. And as a result, they accept something that they're not willing to accept as a country later on. And look, Vern, I, I think we can also say that the policing model that is being offered or the choice between these two policing models, ultimately, you know, countries in the Pacific have long made the decision. The model that's being offered by countries like well, Commonwealth countries, including New Zealand and Australia, is much stronger for their communities. Now, let's look, you know, more than a decade and a half of commitment from the Australian Federal Police in the regional assistance mission in Solomon Islands. If we look to courses like the Regional Law Enforcement Management Program, which has been running for multiple years, where mid and senior level officers co- collaborate and cooperate together, another you know great level of success. We see Australian senior Australian officials, and amongst them others, including New Zealand, being appointed into commissioner roles in some of the smaller states. I think it's a vote of of confidence in the Western policing model. And it's certainly not as some critiques coming out of Beijing or out of Chinese media, which is that this is some form of neo-colonialism. The fact is, is that both governments in the region and people in the region aspire to have a police force that's democratic in nature and offers the type of stability that they yearn for. I certainly don't think those those communities any more than Canada are going to accept policing that is more government-controlled and more government-policy-led. They want to be seen as being heard and understood by the communities, and they want to see a developed program. And I know, you know, whether that's restorative justice, which is a grand proposition coming out of New Zealand, been very successful on a number of those islands. The public want to be involved in the criminal justice system. They want to be involved in the development of law enforcement. They will get neither of those coming out of Beijing. And look, I think both of us tend to agree here, which is that what we're not saying is that China as a, or the Chinese Communist Party as an international government doesn't have the right to be able to operate and act in a diplomatic and friendly way in the Pacific. So if they decide they want to build a brand new police academy or police training facility in Solomon Islands, 
as you said at the start and as I've written recently, then I think it's a really great opportunity for certainly the Five Eyes partners, perhaps not necessarily the US, but most definitely Canada, Australia, the UK, New Zealand, to come together and offer a train the training, the curriculum, the mentors to ensure that you know, the reform program in terms of law enforcement that's been moving along this region for the last three or four decades continues to move in that direction, you know, and it's a work in progress. As you know, whether we're talking about law enforcement in Canada or law enforcement in Australia, the evolution of law enforcement is a work in progress and it's an aspirational goal. Yeah, and, and I think asking, you know, uh, it'd be important to engage with the public about what they anticipate the <coughs> motives of other countries coming in to assist. I, I think, you know, I know that Australia, having been in there for so long, the vast majority of the public see the positive value that is brought by AFP officers and other countries when they bring policing and police training into those communities. I think they need to under, understand fully what they're going to get from a model that's dramatically different from that which is provided by the AFP. And, and in fact, if you came to Canada, was provided by you know, the 100 plus police agencies in Canada. And if they don't understand that, then it's going to be their loss because I think it's extremely important to engage in that discussion. I just hope that, and the challenge, look, when I met with the Samoan prime minister a couple of years ago about having a new parliament, a new international airport built by China, they couldn't get past the fact we don't have to pay yet. So as a result, they find themselves engaging instead in a financial discussion rather than a policy discussion. And thank you very much for that. I guess in wrapping all of that up, which is, you know, it really does come down to this isn't some soft discussion around, you know, policing and and policing reform. It is very much, you know, these nations in the Pacific who are looking towards assistance in law enforcement from the Chinese Communist Party or continuing along the reform process to to do more democratic policing. There's some big choices for a nation to make. And this isn't simply just about offering foreign aid. So on that basis, I think it deserves a whole lot more discussion. But for today, look, thank you very much for joining us, Ben. And I look forward to continuing this conversation and asking some bigger questions around, you know, how do we work with the people and nations across the Pacific to ensure that they get democratic policing in their communities? I agree. Thank you much for engaging. That's a wrap on this episode. This week you heard conversations with Beck Shrimpton, Director of the Sydney Dialogue, and Dr Malcolm Davis, Senior Aspie Analyst, Fergus Ryan, Senior Analyst with Aspie's International Cyber Policy Centre, and Natasha Kassam, Director of the Public Opinion and Foreign Policy Program at the Law Institute, Dr John Coyne, Head of Aspie's Strategic Policing and Law Enforcement Program, and Senator Vern White. Canadian Senator and Aspie International Fellow. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.